Let my song forever be, my only boast is you. Let's pray. Father, you know uh, our emotions and our feelings this morning. You know where we're coming from and what we need. And so we pray, Father, that this uh, passage would be what we need this morning. If challenge, challenge. If encouragement, encouragement. If hope, hope. Amen. Can I tell you about the Titchbourne case? Last year, Zadie Smith released a book about it called The Fraud. The Titchbourne case, which this book covers, was a huge legal case from the Victorian era that literally gripped the public's attention for about 10 years. And it's actually where we get the word titchy from. It was so important, it literally worked itself into the English language. And it's the case of a man claiming to be the long-lost son of a wealthy aristocratic family. And I'm just going to quote a little bit of Wikipedia for you. On the left there is the long-lost son. On the right is the claimant. So here's Wikipedia. Roger Tichborn, heir to his family's titles and fortunes, was presumed to have died in a shipwreck in 1854 at the age of 25. His mother clung to a belief that he might have survived. And after hearing rumours that he'd made his way to Australia, she advertised extensively in Australian newspapers, offering a reward for information. Perhaps now you can see where this is going. In 1866, a butcher from the Australian town of Wagga Wagga, which is fantastic, came forward claiming to be Roger Tichborne. Although his manners and bearing were unrefined, he gathered support and travelled to England. He was instantly accepted by Lady Tichborne as her son, although other family members were dismissive and sought to expose him as an imposter. That's the end of the Wikipedia quotes. And in the end, a huge court case was launched by the other family members who refused to believe that the man on the right was the same as the man on the left. They refused to believe that this was Roger Tichborne, the heir to the aristocratic family. Instead, they said that they had discovered that this man was, in fact, Arthur Orton, a butcher's son from London. Despite a lot of public support for the claimant, a lot of it class-based, wanting to get one up on the elite, which raised a lot of money for the claimant and his court cases, the claimant had a problem. You see, he had no proof. These were all the judges involved over 10 years. uh, And things didn't add up. You see, he didn't have the correct education. He didn't know the private family details. He had no aristocratic manners. To all intents and purposes, the claimant was a butcher's son. And you see, that's kind of the point that James is making in our passage today. He's saying that if you make a claim to be something, 
in our passage's case, someone who has faith, but you don't show any evidence of it in your life, well, then you need to question how real that faith really is. You see, James is keen to point out to the church he's writing to that faith is more than just a passing facial resemblance. It's more than just a kind of intellectual assent, a ticking a box on a census form. What James wants to help these churches to see is that real faith will work itself out. A kind of proof of its reality, if you like. The very thing that the Tichborne claimant was missing. And maybe you're here today, and this is something that's always bothered you. You think, you know, Christians talk a good talk. They talk all this talk about living a good life. But, but all I ever hear about on the news, well, it's Christians not living like that. They say one thing, and yet again and again in the papers or on the news, they seem to do another. For example, you get a notoriously immoral person standing for president who claims to be a Christian, but who clearly doesn't, hasn't, isn't living like one. And it's a completely fair critique. It's exactly the sort of thing that James is tackling here in our passage today. He says, you can't just say the right things, claim the right things. It has to make a difference in how you live. Real faith will do something to you. And he says in particular that it will do two things. It will do something in two ways. It'll do something in how we relate to God, and it'll do something in how we relate to other people. How we relate to God and how we relate to other people. And he gives us four illustrations to help us get it. Two that are positive and two that are negative. Two of them focus on how faith affects our relationship with God, and two on how faith affects our relationship with others. And so we'll look at those two elements in turn. Firstly, we'll look at those Godward examples, and then we'll look at the personward examples. So firstly then, the Godward examples. And in our Bible passage, if you've got it open in front of you, this is the second and third illustration James draws on. It's the demons, in verse 19, compared with Abraham, father Abraham, patriarch Abraham, in verses 21 to 23. Let's look first at verse 19. If you've got it open, do please read along. What a verse this is. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, dash, and shudder. Here James takes up an essential Jewish and Christian truth. There is one God. This is something that distinguished them from the pagan culture around them. 
the declaration, there is one God. And James is making a reference to the Shema here. It was a prayer that as Jews, they would have grown up repeating multiple times a day. They would have known it so well that they would just be able to recite it wherever they were. These words were so familiar to them. And it starts with Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James here takes these key words. He knows he himself, of course, is Jewish. He would have learned this growing up. All of the people he's writing to are probably also Jews who've become Christians like him. He knows that they would know it. He knows that's what he's alluding to. And he takes these key words and he says, do you say these words are true? Great. And I think he's not just being sarcastic. I think he means great. That's great. But then he brings in deliberately provocative words. Because he says, guess what? Even the demons know that. But what, James, what is James trying to drive at here? Well, he's saying if all it takes to be faithful is intellectual assent to some statements of facts, to these words from the Old Testament, well, even the de- demons would be faithful. You see, the, the demons know this. The demons know who God is. But the fact makes them shudder. They fear. They hate the truth. The real believer, well, look at the whole prayer. The real believer knows the Lord is one too, but their response is different. It isn't to shudder. It's to seek to do the very next bit. The very next verse in Deuteronomy. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength or might. That's the difference. That's how James says that the real believer is called to respond to the truth. And verse 5 is the right response to God because it's about our holistic, whole life attitude to him. Just as God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in nature, one in will and in their love, so we ourselves, in our head and our heart and our actions, are to be one, responding to God in love with all our heart and soul and strength. And James turns to Abraham then as a positive example of that in action. And that's verses 21 to 23. You see, way back in Genesis 15, right at the beginning of our Bibles, God promised Abraham a child, a child who would be the beginning of a great nation. Abraham's response is verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, God had made a promise to Abraham. Abraham had responded in faith to God and his promise. And God saw that faith as his righteousness, which means his being made right with God, a, a restoring and a strengthening 
of the relationship he has with him. But James, in our reading today, he jumps ahead from Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 22. We're not just moving seven chapters here, we're moving years in Abraham's life. Now that child, the symbol of God's promise to Abraham in human flesh, as it were, he is growing up. And now God chooses to test Abraham. Will Abraham's faith, credited to him as righteousness in chapter 15, will it prove to be true here? Will Abraham show through a supreme act of trust in and obedience to God, will he show a willingness to put God even above God's cherished promises to him? And James says, and those who know uh, from reading Genesis know that the answer is yes. Abraham's faith And actions, James says, work together, and his faith was made complete. Which here means his faith was brought to maturity by what he did. And James, and the people James was writing to, traced their whole ancestry back to that promise. Back to Abraham and his son Isaac. And so James is stressing that real faith isn't, can't just be an intellectual assent, just a head faith. It should and it must show itself through in heart and actions of faith towards God. And maybe you're saying, well, what does that look like for us today. We aren't Abraham. Well, for us, of course, it's about our relationship with God. If we would call ourselves those who have faith in him, those who have put their trust in Jesus and found our righteousness in him, well, then we have a restored relationship with God. That is what righteousness means. And so what does that look like? Well, it means it looks like hearing from him in his words. It means coming to him and praying to him, feeding on him in our hearts, in communion, worshipping him in song. All of these acts of relationship help us to trust and obey him just as Abraham did. But as well as the Godward effect of faith, the vertical axis, if you like, it has a personward aspect too, a side-by-side aspect. It affects how we relate to others. And James gives us two illustrations of this in our passage. We get a negative example again, and we get a positive example The negative example of the person in church in verses 15 and 16. And the positive example of Rahab in verse 25. And let's more briefly look at each of them in turn. And let's start again with the negative example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace 
keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about it, about their physical needs, what good is it? Imagine if someone sat next to you now, here in church, was like this person. No jumper or coat for the middle of winter. Clearly malnourished, not able to get their daily food. They've got nothing. Their need is written on their face. What do you do? The person in our passage who claims to have faith, well, they say, go in peace. Keep warm and well fed. You know, it's like you turning to them and saying, oh, well, hope the rest of your day goes well. Do make sure you, you keep warm. No matter how well-meaning you are, it's frankly insulting to them, isn't it? All it is doing is making you feel better. It's a platitude. And there's a question for us. Why has James picked this example? Well, we saw last week, James talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. And in particular, we saw that means an especial care for those who are most in need of practical support. And so here, James is saying that if you really have faith, well, then that key commandment of God, of Christ, well, that should be working itself out in your life. Now, of course, James isn't expecting that all of us can fix everything. But he's trying to get us to see that if we really do claim to be believers who believe Jesus' words, well then, if we never allow our hearts to go out to those in need, never show any practical evidence of our care, do we really believe him? Do we really believe Jesus? After all, when God said he loved us, it wasn't just warm words, was it? God didn't say to people, you know what, I really, really do care for you. Now crack on and continue to live your lives the way they were before. You see, at the heart of our faith is the belief that actually God loved us so much, the Father loved us so much, he sent his Son to save us, his only Son. Jesus loves us so much, he gave up the glory of heaven to come down to earth and suffer and die for everyone who puts their trust in him. That is practical, costly love. A love that was not only in the mind of God, but expressed outwards into our lives, open to all willing to receive it. And if, by the Holy Spirit, God is in our hearts, well then of course that is going to work out in us. That's what it is to have faith. James is saying again and again here, if your faith is real, it will, it must change us. And James's last illustration is of someone who was changed, whose practical action showed her faith in God being used for the good of others. 
Verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Just as with Abraham, James uses an example from the Old Testament to make his point. But of course, Rahab is very different from Abraham. She wasn't the father of the nation. In fact, she was a foreigner to the nation. And she wasn't a great patriarch. She was a prostitute. And yet, James uses her as a clear example here. She had faith in God, declaring, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. But James's point is that she didn't just make that claim to faith in God. She showed it in her actions at great risk to herself by protecting two Israelite spies from the certain death they would have faced. She put her own life on the line to protect God's people. And in her reward, she was brought into the family of God. And so for James, she is the perfect example then of someone who had real faith. Faith in action. Her actions clearly show it. To use the language of verse 24 in our passage, she is considered righteous by what she did, not by her faith alone. Maybe that last verse in particular is one that trips you up, surprises you. If it's really something you're more interested in wanting to hear more about, how does that idea of faith alone work with what Paul says? Do please listen back to the evening we had on the James overview where we tackled whether Paul and James disagree with each other. Hopefully, you realize or you think that they don't necessarily disagree with each other. It's the emphasis they have. And I hope you see in Rahab's life and in Abraham's that faith comes first, followed by works and actions. But as we come into land, I wonder what else we're thinking. Are we tempted, on the back of what James has said to us, to look at other people rather than ourselves? To judge other people for how well they're showing their actions in the world? If so, we need to remember some of Jesus' other words. That it's very easy to spot the speck in someone else's eye and miss the plank in our own. So what about me? If I call myself a Christian, where can I see the faith I claim to hold in my head, having shown through in my heart and in my actions? Where am I a little bit more like Jesus? To use James's illustrations, am I more compassionate towards others than I used to be? Am I more kind? Am I more peaceable? Am I more obedient towards God, more trusting of him and his ways? But it isn't just a challenge for us, this passage. 
Because it's an encouragement to. To look back on our lives of faith and see how God has been at work in us. It's no grounds for boasting because it is all God at work in us. But it is encouragement, isn't it? Because for every shocking presidential nominee out there that makes the news all the time, there is a Christian whose faithful life is a joy to see, who quietly, without fanfare, without breaking the headlines, makes their family, their workplace, their community a more Jesus-like place. They don't tend to make it in their news, but they're there, quietly and wonderfully living out their life of faith. And hopefully, though we may not have attained their standards, we see a little bit of it as we look back in ourselves too. And it isn't just an encouragement, this passage. It's also a hope. Because when Abraham and Rahab faced the most difficult of circumstances, the heaviest challenges, it was a living faith that got them through. It was their living faith, God by his spirit working in them, that got them through. And it's that living faith working in us that reminds us that the bad And the sad things of life do not have the last word. In the very darkest moments, it's the living faith that takes us to God's word, that turns us to prayer and reminds us that death is not the end. No. That old enemy death, as Paul said before, is still a shock. Still a tragedy, still a sorrow. But our living faith reminds us that it cannot win. Our living faith reminds us quietly, gently, a small voice in our tempestuous seas that our Saviour Jesus has conquered death by his resurrection and that our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ are safe with him. Let's pray. Father, would this passage be what we need this morning? If challenge, challenge. If encouragement, encouragement. If hope, Would it point us to Jesus? Would it help us to trust him? And would it make us more like our Savior? Amen.